What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Paul Rabel. Paul is an athlete, entrepreneur, creator, and investor. He's one of the best lacrosse players in history. And after officially retiring this year, he has shifted his full-time focus to building the Premier Lacrosse League with his brother, Mike. We discuss the origins of lacrosse as a sport, why he believes the Premier Lacrosse League can be one of America's next major sports leagues, what it was like selling a documentary to ESPN, his experience on the shop with Kyrie Irving and others, and much more. This was an awesome conversation, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. First up is So Rare. So Rare is a global sports game and entertainment platform that allows fans to buy, sell, and trade officially licensed player cards as NFTs. The coolest part? Each NFT has real utility. It's like fantasy sports, except you can buy, sell, trade, and manage your lineup with the NFTs. I've been playing their NBA game a lot lately, and I think you'll love it too. Here's how it works. You sign up for an account, which is free, and you're given 20 common cards. Then twice a week, you put together a strategy and build two five-player lineups and enter into competitions. If you win, you get rewarded with even more player cards. But here's the best part. If you sign up today, SoRare is offering my listeners a free, limited card when you buy five cards on the primary market. So go to SoRare.com slash JoePomp to play. That's SoRare, S-O-R-A-R-E dot com slash JoePomp to play. This episode is sponsored by my friends at 8 Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8 Sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. 8 Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before. And the data backs it up. Clinical data shows that 8 Sleep users experience up to 34% more deep sleep. And elite athletes like Lewis Hamilton, George Russell, Francis Ngannou, and Justin Medoros are now using 8 Sleep to gain an advantage on the competition. But here's the best part. 8 Sleep recently launched the next generation of their pod, and they're having an epic holiday sale. The new Pod 3 enables more accurate sleep and health tracking with double the amount of sensors, delivering you the best sleep experience on Earth. So get your Christmas shopping done earlier this year and go to 8sleep.com slash Joe. That's 8sleep.com slash Joe to save $250 on the Pod 3 this holiday season. Next up is MoonPay, the leader in Web3 infrastructure. Trusted by major crypto brands and millions of people worldwide, MoonPay is a portal to Web3, a place where you can transact with peers globally and own your digital identity. As blockchain technology continues to integrate with sports all over the world, teams and leagues are looking for simple solutions to unlock their digital markets. This is where MoonPay can help. Whether you are a front office staff, a business executive, or a marketer, and you're looking to mint collectibles on the blockchain to create an NFT marketplace for your brand, MoonPay's technology can bring your digital strategies to life. So if you want to learn more, go to moonpay.com slash Joe. That's moonpay.com slash Joe. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. Thank you so much for doing this, taking the time. I appreciate it. It's so to, great to be here, by the way. We Well, we have to start with the obvious to me that no one else saw when you came in here, but I was not expecting you to limp in here right. with a crutch. <laughs> I don't know if you have a brace on or something, but, but you hurt your knee and yeah. you had surgery. Yeah. What happened? Well, again, great to be with you in person. <laughs> I, I We did a podcast over Zoom, and that was before my first knee surgery. And I just remember, I loved doing the show with you. And I've admired your work. And now you're an investor in the POL. And that's amazing. But being distracted over Zoom, so the opportunity to sit with you in person is always better. 
And I just had surgery again on my knee. It's one of the few things that I haven't talked about on social media. That and probably launching the league in 2018 because we had to keep it quiet. But honestly, this one I was just – there's a a little bit of fatigue around talking about injuries and – what was the reality was, and it's but in this our is an old injury. This is uh, it, or new. It's the knee surgery again of what I had this time last year, and it's at the end of our documentary, Fate okay. of a Sport. You're seeing this surgery that I'm having done, which was part of the rationale of retiring, but not the large chunk, which was I think the conflict of being a co-founder of a league and playing in it. And this is just a really hard surgery. We didn't talk about much in the doc, but I've torn through my cartilage. So it's called osteochondriac defect, essentially degenerative cartilage disease, which is wear and tear over time. A lot of NFL linemen that are veterans get it. You push, basically put a divot in your cartilage, and then it just tethers over time. Yep. So we fixed it, but then the tethering continues, and had to go back and have knee surgery again just 10 days ago. So I was very happy to hop on a flight, though, here at week of Thanksgiving and sit with you. <laughs> Don't I make really me was. Feel just, bad about I it. just. I mean, I felt bad about being twenty minutes late. Ah, uh, no, it's no, no concern. <laughs> do you miss playing lacrosse? You retired yeah. last year. For people that yeah. don't know, you do miss it. Of yeah. course, I think like uh, enough to go back. Well, this is a, a different sort of prognosis here because yeah. it's a recurring theme, and you know, part of my skill is my ability to move yeah. and be agility, kind of agility heavy on the field. But yeah, I think in sports there is this lack of understanding or maybe a, an inconsistency to other industries where, I mean, one, the game, just call it what it is, it's ageist. The older we get, the more wear and tear we have, less athletic we become, less advantages we have. And it's a young man's game, young woman's game. And so that's part one. But part two is just retirement. It's so binary. Serena's trying to figure it out right now. Tom Brady well, retired evolved, and came back. Right? Evolved, right? Which I thought was an interesting word. Cause... I was interested in coming back. Yeah. I have this surgery again. And I think like, look, in our world on the side of entrepreneurship and business, like we can take some time off. Yeah. We can open up a new chapter. We can leave a company and go to a new one. We can sell our company and start a new one. And in sports, it's even Gronkowski went through it. So- on the other side of it, though, you spend, in, in my case, almost three decades developing a skill that is unique to most people in the world. And if I were you know, a guitarist in a band and we stopped recording albums, I wouldn't put my guitar down. Yep. So when I'm shooting outside and I post on social media, everyone thinks that I'm coming back. Uh, but I just love shooting. Yeah. love playing. Yeah. And how has your life changed, I guess, from playing to now you're obviously full-time running the business as president of the PLL? Well... Like day-to-day, yeah, right? There's obviously yeah. some overarching themes that obviously are different, but day-to-day. Yeah. Well, actually, the time back that I got from training, and we, and we were really meticulous. So my brother's my co-founder and CEO, Mike, and you have a great relationship with Mike. and He would shoulder a lot of the weight when I was playing, but we were very regimented around two and a half hour carve-out a day for training and PT, and then I'd just be back in the office. So that two and a half hours, to me, doesn't really go to more work. It just yeah. actually goes back to myself, like trying to be a better human. Because as you know, when you start a business, it's, it's, it takes every baby. It takes yeah. everything. Yeah. So the last year was actually, it wasn't a clean transition for me. It was really difficult. I, I'd say that I'm getting my head above water now, just going through the same pain and disruption that athletes go through when they stop playing something that they've loved their entire life. And they have some identity in, and they have a lot of relationships in. 
And so that was really hard. And it'll probably be another couple of years working through it. But do you feel your identity changed, right? Because you're a lacrosse player, obviously. Yeah. I always say that you're really an entrepreneur, right? right. You, your whole life, you've done different things than people expected and kind of carved out your own niche. But you're still in lacrosse. You know, mm -hmm. you're running the league now. Mm -hmm. um, but your identity, you feel changed as a player now and, and an executive instead? Yeah. Well, I, you're right. I feel really fortunate. I was having a conversation with actually someone on the plane about this. And that was actually a little bit of wool over my eyes when I look back at the last years. I felt like really lucky to be one of those athletes that had an immediate transition and stayed in the sport. Not only stayed in the sport, but was governing the sport yep. as I transitioned. But that's not what it's about. That's not what the guttural defect is when you retire as an athlete. It's not being in the locker room, not being in the huddles, not being able to fight on the field for something that's important to you. It's really intrinsic. And the extrinsic stuff has been phenomenal. And we'll talk about it, what we're doing at the PLL and the sports landscape, media landscape. But not being able to put elbow pads and gloves on, strap up a helmet and go out and hit someone, that's it's like, different. That's yeah. primal to me. I yeah. fucking love that stuff. And I won't have that again. And so having some peace with it is part of remembering all of the stress and the struggles and tribulations tied to it. So it's a lot of big decisions in life. I'd imagine it's, you know, the same decision as deciding to marry someone, to have a kid, to move locations, buy a home. There's all these weighted decisions yep. that we pro and con. But these ones, when it's something that you've done, it's part of your fabric, it'll sit with you for quite a bit. But I do, I, w I will say I do enjoy getting to strategize and participate and still relate to players just a little bit differently. Yeah. And they all know you obviously from beforehand yep. and, and who you are and stuff. So that's probably helpful. How do you explain what the PLL is? Say the airplane's a good example, right? You meet yep. someone on an airplane, they have no idea who you are, what lacrosse is, et cetera. They watch sports. They like sports. Yep. How do you explain what you guys are attempting to do or what you're currently doing? Yeah. Well, I think about that question a lot and there's different ways to go about it. I mean, it's, uh, I've even thought about framing of it's the oldest sport in North America. It's an indigenous game. It's been around for thousands of years. That's it's, one thing I've noticed about you, actually. You always talk about the roots of the game and the history of the game. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it's important personally. It's yeah. important from an understanding of history yep. in our country because it's indigenous too. It's mm -hmm. not you know, Naismith inventing basketball in Canada, which is a beautiful story, but this is a game that was celebrated and used as a, a kind of a spiritual activity for the people of this land that we live on. And we play the secular version now. So understanding history in this country is the largest narrative, I think, that we're going through, you know, psychologically, as we go through all this disruption between government and media and politics and discussions. And so I, I think that that, to me, that, that's always drawn me to the game as an adult. It's like, wow, it's so fascinating to understand even, you know, U.S. government and Haudenosaunee treaties mm -hmm. and how the Haudenosaunee people, the creators of the game, are sovereign country. They're the only sovereign native nation in the U.S. People don't even know it. And it's because they fall within the geographical constraints of U.S. and Canada. So that is like one topic that you know, has actually less to do with sport, but it's a segue into people. Well, um, lacrosse is is the oldest game in the U.S.? Oldest game. Yeah. Yep. I don't think most and, people know that. And so what I was talking about framing is, is it better to say it's the oldest game or the first game? Yeah. You first. Know, like a first nation. Isn't <laughs> yeah. it? So I think about that. And then what I tell people commercially is we are the biggest, fastest growing sport and league that you've probably never heard of. What do you mean? Well, I, we can talk about the numbers, but... 
essentially what we've done is create a modern version, a 21st century league that has drawn interest and attention and revenue around a sport that's been around for thousands of years in an attempt to reposition, to compete and be within the top five sports leagues in North America in the near future. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to continue to be some chiropractic movement to the way that the league is structured, which is right now it's tour based. And that's probably the most difficult thing to discuss with people is you and I would sit down and you might ask me, what do you do? Um, I'm the co-founder and president of the Premier Lacrosse League. Oh, you run the professional lacrosse league. I've never heard of it. How many teams? We'll say eight. You go, where are they from? I go, well, we're a touring model. Well, yeah. Why are you a touring model? So, so then it gets heavy, but that therein lies so much opportunity at some point when we do unlock that it's going to open top of the funnel access to people who have a connection to teams in locations. And when you and I are sitting and saying, hey, Redwoods and Atlas are playing to our mates at the bar, and they're like, well, okay, and it's, it's Boston, New York, or LA, Chicago. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like, oh, let me take a walk. Has that been something you have to overcome? Like, how do people pick a team, right? They start yeah. watching the PLL, like, how do they pick a team? How do you pick a team? Yeah. It's just like who I know on the team, who I like. I like yeah. the colors, right? Like, That's, yeah. I like the logo. It's fun. They're good. I imagine people are pretty similar versus the model of city based. Yeah. It's where you're from, who you grew up watching, yeah. who your family likes, et cetera. So, so goal number one for us when we launched the PLL, because there had been professional lacrosse for 20 years prior, yeah. major league lacrosse. I think that's an important caveat to add, right? For people who don't know the sport, it existed prior to this, right? There was a professional I played league. in you it played for in 10 it. years. Yeah. And just quickly, before you get to your point, what were the issues, right? I mean, I know that yeah. that's a loaded question to some yeah, level. I'll, I'll try to level. say it brief, briefly, but no distribution. Yeah. And what they had decided, the reason why it's no distribution, is they had decided to take all of their rights and launch their own OTT in, in a space where if you're growing a league, especially a smaller sport, you want to get it out to the masses. So partnerships are more important than O&O mm -hmm. at an early stage because you need partnership amplification. It's what David Stern did in the 80s, right? He started mandating that the Gatorades and the champions and everyone who was in the NBA also had to structure marketing deals where they were promoting the players and the teams. Fast way to grow. So they were doing kind of inward media. They were not resourcing the players. They were not resourcing the teams. Players were getting paid on average $8,000 and teams had anywhere from two and a half to five employees running the whole organization. And they basically viewed it as a beachfront water property. Yeah. Whereas lacrosse would climb over the last two decades in participation and interest, boys and girls, men and women, that all of a sudden people would turn around and want to buy a team. And if you look at the history of case studies in pro sports, that's never happened. In fact, you can squander the opportunity pretty quickly. College is always led as king, whether it's golf, football, basketball, baseball, then the pro team comes in. And if a pro team or organization or leadership doesn't come in, you're lucky if you become an Olympic sport and relevant once every four years. Yeah. And that was the path that I realized pretty quickly we were going down. And that's why we launched the PLL. We first tried to buy the MLL and we did everything differently from distribution to compensation of players, to sponsorship strategy, to ticket sales, to merchandise strategy and all this stuff in a modern climate. So my point was we needed to get lacrosse right for lacrosse fans. And so getting Joe Pomp to support a team is really important to me. But step one was getting you know, your family or friends or relatives who are already lacrosse fans to reinvest in pro lacrosse 
And I knew that I could get their fandom across the players that they already knew, the coaches that they knew. From college, you're saying basically the guys that they grew up watching. and, and 100%. Like everyone in lacrosse who knew who I was, Rob Pinnell, Miles Jones, you know, Casey Powell, John Grant Jr. So I needed to re-galvanize yep. that interest. And we did that really quickly. So when Mike and I say we're tour-based – and there was also business efficiencies around being tour based. There's a network strategy there because we could bring all at the time six teams to one venue over a weekend and not have to worry about game times and schedule setting with home and away environments that you yep. see in every sport now, where that actually causes the network a lot of pain because they have to clear space among their inventory. We we had an entire weekend to pick a time slot. So we'd go to at the time NBC and say, what are your time slots this weekend? Yeah. X, Y, Z, cool. Take it. So there were ways that we kind of hacked the growth and well, and I imagine you're able to visit today. geographic areas that, you know, care about lacrosse, right? Mm-hmm. If you pick locations for franchises early on, maybe you're picking cities based on size and future growth, but they may not care about lacrosse today, right? Like 100%. I imagine there's some big cities in the U.S. where lacrosse is very low level kind of on a grassroots perspective. So now you can go visit, you know, the Maryland's, you can go yep. visit Connecticut, all these other places where it's very popular. And supply demand one-on-one, right? Yeah. So for a sport, we also took a look at a sport that had 10 million fans at the time. 2 million participants and compared it side by side to soccer, basketball, football in America. It's like not ready for geo based. Yeah. And so it's a smaller audience size from a sampling standpoint. You look at appealing to that audience. How can we drive tickets and viewership? Well, you got to create a supply demand curve. Mm-hmm. It's what F1 does, what UFC does, the individual sports do it. NASCAR, golf, all the best players arrive in one market once or twice a year and people block off their calendar to go. And it's what actually was in front of us with the college Final Four. Yeah. Most attended, most watched then. Yeah, how big lacrosse. was lacrosse Final Four? It's massive, right? I remember watching yep. it on TV and it's, you know, sold out football stadium, basically. It used to be. And then we saw, you know, a wider competitive subset of youth lacrosse coming in. And, yep. you know, just essentially competition for wallet share. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of theories around why attendance in the Final Four has dropped. But when I was playing, it was close to 60,000 people. Yeah, it's a lot. In a championship. Now it's around 30,000. People say optionality. People say competitiveness in the summer, you know, saturation of lacrosse at large. I disagree with, with the notion that the games are on TV now. Therefore, people are less likely to attend. Yeah. Because side by side to other sports, games are on TV. People will go. People still go. For yeah. the big ones too, yeah, right? It's a different, different atmosphere. For the big for ones, sure. yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the grassroots level, youth level of lacrosse today? So much opportunity. How big is it? Like just level set kind of. I would say I would need our partners at League Apps to chip in, but I would say probably a just like probably both, a $200 you know, million popular. dollar business. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that would be in, in registration and, you know, tournaments and not even counting hard goods. Mm-hmm. But if you think about the youth business, it's registration fees, then there's uh, cost of goods. And those are probably the two primary drivers of when you qualify the market size. So I'm eliminating cost of helmet, shoulder pads, elbow pads, gloves, which actually puts our sport similar to golf and hockey, where they're expensive sports to play. Mm -hmm. So we all of a sudden have a more concentrated and exclusive, call it demographic, who can afford to play. It's one of our initiatives that we have with PLL Assist, which is our version of NBA Cares. And it's it's getting more sticks in hands, getting goals on field. 
working with groups like Harlem Lacrosse. There's a lot of 501c3s across the country that are working in communities trying to get people access to the game that they love. Yeah. It's just otherwise hard to play. Because if you think about it, if we're making yeah. a decision, my parents, if my equipment wasn't passed down to me by my neighbor, I would have never played lacrosse. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have been able to afford it. Yeah. It's not worth making a three three to $500 bet on something your your son or daughter may not even enjoy. Yeah. Stop playing in two weeks. It's so great about a basketball and a soccer. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, let me pick this thing up. See That's why like soccer is probably the most, is the most popular sport in the world. No right? question. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think about it on even like a lower level, right? Of just like participation, all the goods and kind of the costs associated with that is important. Obviously that goes into that. But if you look at the other sports leagues today, right? The US, the NFL is obviously the biggest. Mm. I would actually challenge that they've had a much harder time growing internationally than most people believe, right? Mm. Roger Goodell talks all the time about how they want another division because of London and Germany and people are going to the games. And they, the, the truth is, right? They've been playing international games for 50 years internationally, right? Preseason, et cetera. They've been doing the international series since 2007. So over a decade of games in London and elsewhere. Don Uh, Garber was leading that early on before he took over MLS. And there really hasn't been substantial media deals that follow that for the NFL or or other things, right? There's some growth for sure and people are interested. But I would argue a big part of that is because people don't play the game. Right. You don't mm. you don't know. It's fun to go to a game. It's fun to do that. But they didn't play the game. They didn't grow up around it, etc. So I think that some would see it as maybe a challenge for you guys. But I almost see it as an opportunity where if you get sticks in people's hands and goals on the field, how many more doors can you open to where now people are interested in lacrosse? They're playing. They're growing up around it and the sport mm. grows. Adam Silver told me once that getting a basketball in someone's hands is equivalent to getting a person in a car for a test drive. They are 67% more likely to buy a car or become a lifelong NBA fan. Yeah. And 67, I know, is higher than 50%. So yeah. That up. But participation is a huge indicator of sport growth. But as we learned in what you alluded to with the NFL, and I would say the UFC, and even F1, the WWE, it's not the only thing. Yeah. It's certainly not the only thing. Because sports are show business, as Peter Guber would say. Sports are entertainment. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge opportunity for us because we've built this great business off of our endemic core fans. And there's all of this open pasture in front of us to create an entertaining property that might get, you know, NFL, I think, has close to 40% fans who are female. Yeah. And we know that fewer boys are playing football because of the concussion information that's getting out there and just lower participation. But you really can't play tackle football as a young girl. And they still have this huge fan base of Mm -hmm. women. So we think about entertainment all the time. And then a quick note, my prediction on the NFL, similar to the NBA, and I think the NBA is much further along international strategy, is that they just look at the biggest game in the world in soccer. And you have all these divisions around the world and then come together, at least in, in Europe, and you have the Champions League. Just take top four teams. We, we launched our championship series. It's coming up this February around this kind of idea around an off-season tournament that is tied to the end-of-season results from the prior year and creating something awesome that people want to be a part of and attend. Championship series, I would argue, is the best tournament in sports. Or sorry, the, the, the Champions League. Yeah. Hopefully the championship series one day. Champions League. And what the NFL, I think, will want to do, ideally, or the NBA, is when they launch NFL Germany, and this could be in 10 years, and they launch you know, NFL in England or NFL in Asia Pacific, is that they actually operate independently and they have their own Super Bowls. And then what they're doing is driving global football year round. And then the NFL owns their version of the Champions League every year where the top teams in each do this tournament. 
ways away. But I do know a team in Germany, a team in England, a team is probably most likely to start outside of the U.S. in Mexico City. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because it's transportation costs and yeah. also competitive yeah. disadvantages. Yeah. If you're having well, they to They also jump watch football pond, more than, than anyone else because of the location to the United States. I mean, a flight to London time is difference. about the same time from New York as it is to California, but yeah. the time zone difference is five hours versus three, and that's a huge impact as yeah. an athlete. Well, and people are already trained to watch it, you know, 10 a.m., yeah. right? So I think that's obviously helpful, too. And what we love about our tour-based model, and we did this in 2019, and we're probably going to do this again this coming year, is we can actually pick up our teams that aren't tied to geos right now and do tournaments around the world. Yeah. You know, there's 79 countries now that are officially sanctioned to play lacrosse. We completed our Olympic bid, hopefully here, fingers crossed, in the next Is that going to happen? Six months. 2028? It would LA. be ideal. I mean, the last time, well, it wasn't the last time the Olympics were in L.A., but in 1932 when they were in L.A., lacrosse was playing. Mm -hmm. 1904, 1908. It goes back to our story. You know, we're not building slam ball. Yeah. Or frankly, you know, CrossFit is a really good branding package yeah. around, you know, cross training and but stuff that existed before they, yeah. they gamified it. Even paddleball. I don't think, you know, and I hate to burst the bubble of a lot of even some of our shared investors. I mean, pro sports is fucking hard. Yeah. You've got to have stars. You've got to have real appetite for the viewing experience has got to be good on screen. Mm hmm. If I were investing in pickleball, I would want a version, I would invest in a version of PGA of America, a certification business, an adult league that's nationwide or globally. Like there's a lot of money and a fast growing sport like pickleball. Mm -hmm. But I, I just can I just can I would you, argue I'm not gonna that, sit down and watch it. Yeah. I would argue not for that, ten or twenty uh, years until Rafa Nadal starts playing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what am I, what am I, what am I going to watch? I would Former argue that there's like a, there's like a silent thing that none of the pickleball people are saying, which essentially is you're getting in on the ground floor of a sport, right? And what comes along with that is there's obviously an opportunity for growth, but the valuations are extremely low to own a franchise or own a team in one of these leagues. You're, you could pay five hundred thousand, a million bucks for a team in five, ten years if the sport does grow from a venture investment perspective. That's not bad. It's not right? bad. Because that, because you're just solely looking at the potential upside from that investment, not necessarily – you don't need to be the NFL. You don't even need to be the PLL. The, the right? thing you about be, it though, and you're smarter on this than me with your JPM background, but from an operations standpoint, in sports, capital burns oh, yeah. really fast. Well, you know that better than me for and sure. And the MLL yeah. – Kind of reminds me of even what you're saying is what MLL did. Yeah. The, the previous owners of Pro Lacrosse, like, let's get in really cheap and sit on this thing. Yeah. And at some point- And they point, just didn't invest, you're saying, basically, because chap well, capital invest was, in what? To yeah. your point, like, what's Pickleball Pro going to invest in at the moment? I get the idea to get in early, but you better be ready to wait yeah. unless you start operating now. And what that means is probably going after Novak Djokovic. Yeah. I mean, seriously, that's how I think. Yeah. That's how we did the PLL. Is like we're not launching without the best players in the world. Yeah. And now I want the best coaches in the world. Yeah. And that leads to best product, where you start with your core audience. And I don't. And again, I don't know who the core audience is yet of pickleball. Yeah. That's the other thing. They it's, all play. That doesn't mean they want to watch. Uh, true. Do true. You know what I mean, the core people who play golf know that the top golfers who they are and we kind of were watching it so it's it's fascinating case study my hot take would i hate be, to be bearish on it but i am well my hot take actually and i think it's bearish for pickleball is that live golf the people that are running that are going to go after tennis next 
And I think that because if you look at, most people don't realize this, but tennis is a really, really, really hard sport to make money as a professional athlete in. Mm -hmm. Most of them actually lose money. It's like the top 50 or top 100, I believe, make money on tour. Mm -hmm. uh, and unless you're a top 10, 20, 50 player, you're not making really any money. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're live, right, and you start to expand this model, we don't know what's going to happen in golf, I would argue, right? Like they got some good players that made good progress in year one, regardless of kind of what you think of the optics. I think that's probably undeniable. If it works three, four, five years down the line, tennis is like an obvious sport that you would do it in because similar to golf, you only really want to watch the top players. You want them to all be in the same tournaments at the same time, which tennis struggles with now outside of majors. And they want to get paid. They want to make the most money. So I think that's like an obvious one. Boxing would probably be another one. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting time because I feel like sports are fundamentally changing, right? At, kind of at the ground level and all the way up. And people are super interested in this from an investment perspective now. Yeah, I agree with both of those calls around tennis and boxing and revitalization, but also to your point, identifiable challenges to be a player in tennis yeah, and to be a boxer from an income standpoint. And then sports have become very quickly even for some of the largest media agencies, you know, kind of entertainment venture investors like Churning Group led yeah. our last round is because they're enterprise businesses now. They're not just the last holders of live IP, right? Live television is, in my opinion, solely based on the NFL first and then other live sports. Yeah, News can go behind a paywall. It just... It can. And the reason why is I don't need to sit through three and a half minutes of commercial breaks to get my news. Yeah. I have to in sports because of timeouts. Well, you could go on Twitter. Well, quarter breaks. <laughs> quarter breaks. Like it's built in. Yeah. Reviews. Yeah. I have to watch this game live mm -hmm. and I have to sit through ads, yeah. which makes it valuable for networks that are advertising businesses. Everything else is just going to continue done. to move to streaming and on demand. And so that's part one. It's also now a real estate play. Yeah. Right. Which is incredible. And and there are so many different ways to explore capitalization. Private equities come in the NFL, the NBA and the NHL. And now MLS are all, have all loosened their restraints around private equity investment and ownership in teams. And then you have it's public perfect companies. For, it's perfect for institutionals, too, because if you think about it, what do they want? They want management fees and they want something that has a track record of appreciation. Mm -hmm. Pro sports, you're basically locking up money for 10, 20 years. Yeah management fees every single year, 2%, and you know it's going to appreciate. So yep. like, it's a no-brainer for them to do. And then you have all these wealthy individuals that want access to this. So I think that's going to actually become the next biggest step. Because like, so I was talking to Troy Aikman last week, and I asked him, you know, have you thought about any of these ownership groups? Like being, he was an owner of the San Diego Padres, a minority owner. Have you thought about that from an NFL thing? He's like, I'd be interested in running a team, but I don't want to be an investor anymore. You don't really get as much access as you want. No. But you also now, if you want to be a majority investor or majority owner, you have to write a 30% check for whatever the NFL total of franchise value is, right, in the NFL. Yep. Franchise sells for $5 billion, $10 billion. That's, you know, a multi-billion dollar check. Right. No one can write that really outside of a few individuals. Well, yeah, and it's the most exclusive ownership club in the world. Yeah. You know, it's one in, one out the door. Yeah. You know, kind of going back to the enterprise and why, if you try to understand at a macro level, the purpose of the business is where you can drive business. And I think it comes down to three things. First is, can you provide things that are needed? So it's necessity, utility, and community. Necessity are things like roof above our head and food. Utility is driving our lives forward from a mobile phone to a laptop. You know, footwear mm -hmm. is utility. Uh, and then community is, is connection. And sport provides... I think a deeper connection as does probably film than anything else in the world. And that trickles down 
into utility and necessity as things like licensing departments open up with, within these teams and owned and operated, whether it's real estate and so on with like the Jerry Jones and the Robert Kraft business models and Ted Leonsis business models and stuff. So I think community actually sits at the top and a lot of, I think, intra and interpersonal psychologists would suggest that's why we mate. That's why we have monogamous and in some cases polyamorous relationships that are formed around the ability to connect with another human being. We can do so much in our lives, but if there's no one to share it with, then it's an awfully lonely thing. And in sports, they cross over not only divisiveness of political, religious, or sexual orientation or racial divides. You sit down next to someone who you may not know disagrees with your belief system, and you support the players on the field that are representing your community or your location. And that, to me, makes sports the most valuable asset class in the world right now. I think you just summed up exactly why sports are valuable in like 30 seconds no, like it's yeah. longer than that but well, no it was perfect though <laughs> no it's, it's perfect it's uh it's so true too right like everyone talks about it but hearing it broken down of just like why community is important and how sports impact that i think was spot on right and that's what advertisers want to they yeah. want to connect with people yeah and how do we do that in a really difficult market right now well the entrance point is sports in that community and the other is the creator economy yeah. Because they're building relationships too. Yeah. How do you guys think about distribution at the PLL? You obviously signed a deal with ESPN recently. Yeah. Why ESPN? Why was that important? Talk me through that. Worldwide leader, best distribution in way of net eyeballs, especially understanding the sports fan and their wider ecosystem from a marketing promotion standpoint to even the app, what they're structuring right now on the betting side. I've been working on for the last three years. They're unequivocally the best partner in sports for a sports league. Now, MLS and Don just struck a deal with Apple, and that has all of its pros tied to it. And Netflix has been on record now a few times over the last year and a half talking about interest in potentially acquiring, so buying versus renting sports yeah. rights and where that might make sense and all that. But when it comes to a holistic partnership, ESPN has their daily 24-hour programming where they discuss outcomes and discuss perspective matchups and build interest that then drives live viewership, which then drives revenue to the game. Mm -hmm. And they are also the only network that has insane scale across social media. So what is unlimited inventory are social networks to limited inventory, which is broadcast cable distribution. And what they did behind the scenes, and they've invested in people like Omar and things like that, is they realized that they could have both. And so the Sports Center handles and the ESPN handles across different mediums are, you know, 25 million plus. Yeah. And so why that's unlimited inventory is okay, we're all fighting for the editorial team to talk about us on Sports Center ahead of our game. And that's us, the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, whatever, right? But they can talk about us all, you know, within consecutive tweets inside of 10 minutes. And that hit a larger audience that's watching TV. So they're the best of both worlds for me. Marketing promotional vehicle, incredible inventory, ESPN, ESPN2, ABC are the big ones. And even ESPNU delivers a good rating mm -hmm. when it makes sense. And I like the future of where Disney's going with Hulu and how Hulu's programming, I think, is the big differentiator. If you look at a virtual MVPD and who they compete with, with YouTube TV. I'm a Hulu subscriber. I used to be a YouTube TV subscriber because the original programming tied to Hulu and yeah. Disney's a partner. But that to me is why ESPN has been so effective. And where we can continue to grow is international. 
had mentioned 79 countries that watch and they need more access. Fate of a Sport that came out exclusively on ESPN Plus and it was aired on ESPN and ABC is now going to be out on Hulu on December 9th, which is a big deal for us. Mm -hmm. Now you're in front of 40 million people on their documentary list, which is highly sought after. And then we're working to try to get it to D plus so that people around the world can watch it who are lacrosse fans. So international audience is important from a scripted, unscripted standpoint. It's important to us from a live broadcast viewership standpoint. And then the other area, what I would say we're trying to uncover is what the value of our games on demand can be. That league, MLL, that we competed against, we bought. And it was a huge value proposition from an IP standpoint because a lot of the way we consume sports, whether we know it or not, is through looking at the history of the game while we watch the game live. Yeah. So Tony Romo or Troy Aikman will reference Brett Favre as he's talking about Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. Or he'll talk about Joe Namath as he's referencing Tom Brady and those so highlights those are on together, screen. Basically. and it, yeah, It's a narrative. Yeah incredible value add to the viewer and so we got that overnight when we bought mll and then we also have these games to your question around what didn't work with mll well no one saw them and you have some of the greatest players ever in casey powell and gary gate that my bet is if we figure out how to unlock those games albeit a small audience there's a revenue stream there and then there's also increased retention and engagement they can build around our core fans yeah i love that i have a question about fate of a sport so fate, yeah. of, fate of a sport is the documentary that you guys released with espn have you seen conor mcgregor's notorious yep. i think it's on netflix or something like yeah, that it's an old school one i think old school out one, like four yeah. years ago a while ago yeah the first time i watched that i was like holy shit, where did all this footage come from? Right. right? I was like, what the fuck? Incredible thing, right? He's like, you know, after his first UFC fight, he's sitting on the toilet doing an interview on his iPad and he's got his head, you know, his, his sunglasses on and he's yelling, I'm the best in the world, all this stuff. Yeah. It's just crazy shit. But I remember thinking, you know, where did all this come from? You guys had a lot of similar footage of years ago, it seemed, yeah. of you guys, you know, decisions around building the league, cut in with interviews now and different yeah. things like that. Was this always part of the plan or was this just kind of happenstance that you had footage also well i have this thing behind the scenes where mike is the mad scientist and you know has built companies before and and has structured our financing through each of our series and has an incredible knack for resource allocation Mm -hmm. but he gives me a lot of rope to do dangerous things and be creative and i'll never know because he's so you know confidently polite and complimentary if he actually thought it was going to work but i was like we're going to document this thing yeah and it's going to get distributed and i had zero experience in film and entertainment david o'connor is one of our board members doc was a partner at caa now runs arctos in between that he was the ceo of msg and he had so much experience and i think he thought i was nuts but he gave me great advice along the way so the answer is yes, we were very intentional around shooting our process. And my answer to Mike was, he's like, well, what if this doesn't work? That's going to sell if it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And if it does work, it might actually be less valuable if it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. like Everyone's like, okay, another puff story. So I think people liked that it was very raw and it showed a lot of the, the kind of the fallibilities. Mm-hmm. However, I will tell you how a Conor McGregor doc works. And we did this in our case too is you watch it, and this is the beauty behind the scenes when you're producing a film, you watch this and you go, they must have just had the cameras rolling the whole time. And impossible. So what you do is you go into home videos and you see what you have as a director and you get, cool, we have this moment of Conor McGregor boxing in this basement of his hometown 
and I'm going to interview, I'm just making this up. I'm going to interview his girlfriend about that home and maybe we'll take a walk with her in that home and then call to that footage. So you make it seem you frame like the story around that piece of footage right. that you know you have. Yeah, you take your inventory and you storytell around it and the viewer at home feels that. It's a better story, but then they also just wonder like god, this guy must have just recorded everything. Yeah. Are we talking about like cell phone footage or like you had like a camera guy? You say scrape the internet. It so, could be either one, yeah. Yeah, I I love the idea of this is really good documentary filmmaking if you go, okay, I want to tell this story about Vince Carter. And Vince Carter's like infamous NBA dunk competition. Yeah. So let's go license the rights from the NBA. Let's talk to Vince. Let's figure out every angle on the floor from everyone who is media credential. Mm-hmm. And then Shaquille O'Neal and that camera that he had in his hand that's kind of infamous went viral when he stood up his mouth wide open when Vince, whatever, tomahawk from the free throw line. Yeah. I want that footage. How do I get that? So let's contact Shaq and his team. And, and that's scraping the internet, like thinking, you know, doing Twitter searches, doing Google searches, trying to find these, and then, you know, licensing it and trying to find these alternative angles that give something very raw and compelling. This reminds me, you were on The Shop yeah. recently, which I everyone probably knows at this point, but Spring Hill, LeBron's right. show, kind of, they bring athletes, entertainers, people of culture, stuff like that, talk about various topics. What was that like? It's unscripted, obviously. Yeah. So, so you guys are assuming just talking about kind of whatever you want. Yeah. Are there like a bunch of different takes? Are you given topics? Like just how does that all work? No, it was super raw. Uh, to me, there, it, it kind of reminded me, I've done two two of like the bigger, now three if I count this one, two, two of the bigger promotional videos I've done was, and this will sound weird, but it was The Shop and Dude Perfect. Yeah. And no, it, they're huge. People don't realize they're fucking huge. Very different <laughs> yeah, shows. But they're huge. But when you when I arrived at both, and that one was in Frisco, Texas, and this one we shot in Tribeca, you get there and they're like, okay, let's just sit down and talk. Yeah. The dudes were like, what do you want to do? I was like, really? We have 24 hours. And I figured you guys had the trick shots down and they're like, no, yeah. let's go to the store and maybe buy some stuff. And and it was very raw. Are the trick shots real? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I made a video about them once just talking about kind of what they're doing and how they've grown and yeah. all this stuff. And everyone's claiming the trick shots are fake. And no, I'm no, like, no, no way they're fake. The, the beauty of it is that we never say that it's on the first take. Yeah. And so it they- It could take 100, but it's done. Yeah. I mean, they use probability math and they sit down and say, okay, this is really difficult. Their work ethics through the roof and their focus and concentrations through the roof. They're athletically talented. There you go. Cool. We'll learn what it takes to get this shot down probably in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. And then we're just going to sit here until we hit it. And so they never claim this is, you know, one shot trick. We just sit there and we do it and do it, do it until we hit it and we take that take. So yeah, they're doing a, uh, I think that's brilliant. Actually, It is. It is yeah. brilliant. And obviously it's popular. <laughs> right. They're now opening this facility. I, they haven't said where, but I think it's probably going to be in Texas if they end up building it and stuff where people can come visit. Right. Yeah. And they're doing this tour model now where they go around and they do these shows. It's kind of like Harlem Globetrotters to, to some extent. Parks. I mean, Park. it's basically they're, it's they're creating their own Disneyland. Yeah. It's, it's smart. Uh, it's really smart. It's very smart. Yeah. But it seems like like they've obviously done the social strategy really well. They were early to YouTube. They've been Incredible. doing this for a decade. Best. Yeah. Well, one of those people that you point to and you're like, they did it right. I would argue you guys are doing a fantastic job of that. And it's one of the things that drew me to this from an investment perspective. You obviously look at the valuation and the growth and kind of where things can go. But as an entrepreneur myself, I always tell this funny joke of like every good entrepreneur micromanages. Like everyone's like, oh, you don't want to be a micromanager. You don't. You have to care about this shit. You have to care about the details. You have to care about all of that. And when I looked at your guys' social accounts, when I looked at the product you were putting out on the field, when I looked at the presentation on TV, it's like, 
fuck, that looks good. <laughs> right? That looks like what I would want if I was running this stuff. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And I think that was a huge part of this for me. Yeah. How much detail did you guys put into all of that? How much thought goes into all Meticulous of that? Meticulous about yeah. it. And as an entrepreneur, you also have to sort of fancy yourself a journalist and study, whether it's reading a book or taking a master class or just following creative directors. Mm-hmm on Instagram and see the attention to detail that they put into because they're the best at what they do. And if I can just glean a few tactics and deploy that to our design team when it hits stage two or three of a six stage green light process, I'm becoming you know, a part of a lean organization. When we launched the league, we had fewer than 10 employees a creative director to make sure that, you know, the channel skins in place on Twitter, the avatars are lined up, the first 10 posts are structured, the copyright is very clean, mm-hmm. the imagery is great, and this campaign rollout is ready to go on the clock. I had no background in that, but the amazing thing about the 21st century is we have the information at our fingertips. So that's just one part of how we pay attention to everything that we do. And then one of the things I learned from an investor, Ryan Holiday, is you know you obviously want to own the splash you know when something hits but you also want to design the drop and record that and then you want to dominate the ripple so there's always three big stories in one and people see the splash because that's the exclusive and that's the launch and then you show them what went into it behind the scenes and all along you're carrying through and you're preparing for the follow-along editorial story on the success hopefully of that splash yeah every time it's like what are we owning the drop owning the splash owning the ripple about every fucking story that we put out there but so i think the best example actually is the trophy Right. And I say that because most people think of a trophy. It's a trophy, right? Like you you hand a trophy out. What is it? You guys created a story around that, right? Where you get it designed by Tiffany. You later release a video of it being made, right? Mm. The the creative process that goes into that. And now it's turned into this thing where it's like everyone obviously wants a trophy, but like I really want that trophy now, right? Was that the intention behind that? Like you're creating a story around something that people normally wouldn't exi- think God, about that, at least? That's another example on a smaller level of maybe the doc and Mike being like, okay, I trust you. And he'll write me, I trust you. <laughs> yeah. Literally, and yeah. it's a threat. <laughs> Don't fuck this <laughs> up. <laughs> because it, it's, you know, it was, this for me is a feeling around being an athlete in MLL previously and then looking at what it is to be in the NBA and the NFL and that moment when you hold a trophy, you're proud of it. And the trophy's got to be worth something too, mm-hmm. you know, and it's priceless. It's a priceless piece. People get it tattooed on them when they, when they win a Super Bowl, when they win the Larry O'Brien in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be top class trophy making. Tiffany is the top class in that. It's also an elevating world is we, I, what I didn't talk about in, in, enterprise growth in sport is that sports also crossing into culture, into fashion, into culinary, and these worlds that are huge in their own right. Athletes launching their own cooking books, athletes now sitting in the front row of, you know, fashion week, you know, the outfits they wear to the games. (sighs) Yeah. It's, and so having partnership, what we discussed early on to share that narrative, to amplify that narrative also elevates a sport that right now is considered maybe lesser than. These guys are on smaller wages, they're weekend warriors, whatever that narrative was. And that was the same narrative that MLS was up against 20 years ago. These are the guys that were cut from a football and basketball team in high school. They play soccer in America. Yeah. And Don and the MLS elevated past that. UFC had a narrative when they launched, took them 10 years to get past. It's a blood sport. Don't invest too risky. Someone's going to die in the octagon. Right. And they 
built and built and built past that. And they do it through the stories, partnerships, athletes. And so that was really important to me to, to anchor it with a partner like Tiffany. And then, yeah, drop, splash, ripple and getting press to cover it. And then making sure when that first championship moment happened this year that we were all over it with good photography, good video, great just general visuals. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the question that we just kind of went off on tangent, the shop, you know, you have the biggest names in sport and Mav and LeBron running the show, but then also it was like Idris Elba, Drew Barrymore, Kyrie Irving. And I'm sitting in a room with them talking about the game's roots, talking about sports, sports business, entertainment, what makes us happy, what makes us sad. And that a little cross player sitting in a room with these people, again, I think elevates the game, familiarizes more people with the sport, lowers the tension. To me, that's so valuable. I don't even, in those moments, I don't even look at impressions or viewership. Or I saw, um, forgive me, I don't know who said it. I don't even know who it necessarily was, but I saw a tweet when it went live or recently, and it was basically like, Paul Rabel went on the shop. It's going to be watched by millions of people. He talked about the roots of the game in the first 10 minutes. Like, you don't understand how much that fucking means to us. And it was like a, you know, a lacrosse account of some type. And I think it speaks to exactly that of just like, you're getting in a room of people of different cultures and races and all these different things, right? And you're talking about the history of the game and presenting it to people that haven't played the game or may not know about the game. And it's like the perfect avenue to get people interested in the game. I mean, people think about lacrosse as if it's Wimbledon, yeah. right? And that it's, you know, always been this really rich, elite, white, historically sexist arena. Yeah. And it's not. You even think about, you know, golf has one of the majors called the Masters. I would kind of run from that now. Yeah. I just wouldn't, wouldn't want something called well, the there's Masters. Some, there's some other stuff that. Yeah, uh, I know it's probably. incredibly historic <laughs> yeah. and very valuable and, and down in Augusta. And, you know, I went this past year to experience it and ESPN hosted it. And it, was, it was a wonderful event, but like, ugh, you know, and, and so why that's also important is we're actually an indigenous sport. Mm hmm. We've lost that narrative over time. Just like, fuck, man. It's not the sport's fault. Yeah. It's our historical bookkeeping in the US. I mean, we know from taking history classes as a young kid, how much did we learn about Native American culture? We didn't. Didn't learn anything about yeah. it. We learned about Christopher Columbus and you know the original colonies and yeah. so on and so forth. I mean, it's Thanksgiving week coming up and on Thursday, and then Friday is proper National Indigenous Heritage Day, and this is Indigenous Heritage Month. In, in North America, you know, I celebrate Thanksgiving for reasons of gratitude and giving and thankfulness only. I don't believe in, you know, the stories that we were told around, you know, pilgrims and Native Americans and, you know, it being a very like conscientious and emblematic and peaceful breaking of bread. It yeah. was not that. So anyway, that's again, sport going into history, which it goes important. back to community and connection and understanding and empathy and all that stuff. If we were to look at five years down the road, right, and we looked at the PLL, what does it look like? Not only from like a size perspective, but are the players, are they all doing this full time? Yeah. Do they have other jobs? How many people are coming to games? Yeah. How popular is it? Just like give me your 30,000 foot view. Yeah. Well, I want to be a top five team sports league in North America. And how do we get there? Well, there's already interest in buying teams. Buying teams would take us to a location model. You can go location model without changing our business model. So we're single entity. So that means investors, when, as an investor of the league, you own all the entire thing, all the teams. You're not an owner of a specific team. I would argue that's more valuable than just owning the Redwoods. The MLS is still single entity. 
their owners are not considered franchisees. They're considered what they call investor operators in their bylaws. The trade association leagues are much different. That's the NFL, the NBA. Both work. We're going to try to maintain single entity status so we can be really swift and agile in the way that we grow across emerging categories and existing categories. However, I would say, given the interest in trying to think about an investor operator model and thinking about the value of being in locations, we got here. We have the lacrosse audience. We want the sports casuals now. Got to tap into that universal language. So that's in our roadmap. If I think about the business story of the last year, our broadcast was up 27%. What's more important if you look at advertisers and revenue is the demographic within those who watch TV. It's called adult 18 to 49. That's who people pay a higher CPM for more money per view. That was up 47%. Across social media, our views were up 169%. Our tickets were up 20%. Our sponsorship was up 40%. Our merchandise was up 36%. And our PL Academy, our youth business was up 32%. So everything's green and to the right. And that's in year four. And the investment that we brought in from Chernin, from the WWE, from people like you and Rich Kleiman and KD and 35 Ventures, that's to resource further growth. That's not to, you know, make sure the business is stable. That's just to grow this fucking thing. And that's the path we're on. We've launched our championship series to create more tonnage, which is a word we use in sports, which is more inventory, makes you more valuable from a media distribution and activation sponsorship standpoint. We're looking at international growth, dropping a tournament again, possibly in Japan, which we did in 2019. Leveraging our incredible board from Joe Tai, I mentioned Doc, to Rain, to Churn, and now, you know, hedge fund tycoon and Brett Jefferson. And then I think we're calling Project Next essentially how we figure out locations. So there's just so much room to grow. It, it gets me up out of, out of bed every morning, hobbling on a crutch. Is it possible to maintain the single entity structure while going to a location model yep. with investors? It's what the MLS does. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so they basically- They're single they're entity. Single entity, you own a team, but you're still feeding into the single entity. Yeah, you structure the agreements that way. So yeah. so they still take home the majority of tickets, sponsorship, all the local stuff. And then the league reserves national rights around certain things. Yep. In a trade association, all of that is decided on by a super majority vote of all of the owners, which are broken down into subcommittees. So you probably hear Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft mm -hmm. leading the media rights deal with Roger Goodell mm -hmm. and then lobbying. And that's got to be a collective decision. It's not the case in MLS, not the case with the PLL right now, where we just make the decisions as best for it's quicker. The it's easier to grow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 And then how does it work? Like, on an operational level, obviously, if you're the NFL, right, maybe you don't love things that are happening in Washington, but you think Dallas is doing a great job. Yep. Do you guys give them the optionality to do things on an individual individual basis, like locally, or do you guys still kind of structure what things should look and feel like? Yeah, it would be a hybrid. So this is under the pretense that we bring on investor operators and they're building yeah. a market. What we would want to do, too, and potentially are doing, yeah. is building out and creating math as well as examples around requisites for our investor operators to build and operate stadiums. Is what Don Garber got right. Mm -hmm. It's really expensive to do what MLS is doing. I think there is a tighter version of that. I love, for example, what they do down at the Star in Frisco, Texas. We had a game there. It's a beautiful venue, state-of-the-art. It's 8,500 people, massive screen on the inside, indoors, so you mm -hmm. can control the climate. I mean, I love arena sports. We're not an arena sport, but we could be playing. We played two games inside. We could potentially play three if we ever went to the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, which I well, think the series quite is well. inside, right? The series, series is inside. Yeah, because it's just 
you know, we notice our ticket scans go up well before the game starts too. Because people are like, cool, you go inside and sit and listen to music and watch these guys warm up. When you're in the summer and it's a challenge for us, a challenge for Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball actually builds their ballpark around the sun rising, the sun setting mm -hmm. and game times and then creating kind of overhang to protect fans from dehydration and just overwhelming heat. Yeah. So, you know, I would love to play games down in Orlando and love to play at, we figured out Texas, both are huge markets. One of them has an indoor venue that we played in the other we haven't figured out yet. Because it's too hot. It's too fucking hot. Yeah. Yeah, we're playing four games. Players players' product, I think, goes down if you're playing in 100 degrees, 118 maybe on the field with humidity. Yep. And the fans are like fucking sweating. They want a better experience. So anyway, I think there would be a uh, a stadium build to it, which would be part of, you know, if we go to that model. Let me also say that we don't have to have individual owners or sell stakes in teams to be geo-based. We can still operate that from HQ. And I think what I know what Don's building in MLS and what Adam and his predecessor did really well is creating a teambo, which is sort of globally recognized in sports ops as internal infrastructure provided to franchisees to help with everything from marketing best practices to ticket sales to sponsorship best practices to even roster management and salary cap budgeting and things like that. Mm -hmm. We would definitely have that and are already building our version of that for our coaches who also function as GMs. It's not often that you see someone who is a player and an executive for a league, right? You're, you're uh, kind I'm of a psychopath. Yeah, yeah you're, you're seldom in that. Uh, not only from like a work standpoint, but also, yeah, everything else. Was it difficult to maintain relationships with players as an executive or was it easier? I imagine, right, that some guys appreciate that because they know you, they know kind of who you are, they know your values, you're looking after them, et cetera. And then maybe some guys feel like, I don't know if trust is the right word, right? But like you're on the other side too, right? Yeah. And they maybe they don't trust other people who are only on the other side. You're kind of this quasi seat where you do both. Was that difficult to maintain while you were still playing? Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. I would say it's, that was the primary reason why I retired. Yeah. And I've learned a lot therapeutically from the process. What was so difficult though? Just like losing that trust with people or I that mean, friendship? My name wasn't actually, I believe it was Mike's name was on the back of their paycheck. Yeah. But they're sitting in a locker room with someone who in theory is responsible for their wages, is responsible for the punitive reaction of the league from a high hit mm -hmm. to which locker room we're in at the venue. And even though I removed myself from all of those conflicts of interest, I was just on the marketing side. I took the president title when I retired. There's still that understanding that I have jurisdiction and line of sight on all that. And to me, that was the biggest difference. Because LeBron James right now and Tom Brady are still talked about amongst their peers as, you know, league favorite, team favorite, and getting probably things behind the scenes that the mass doesn't get. You know, mm -hmm. Remember the rumor going around when the NBA was in the bubble that LeBron had a mansion and everyone else was in dorms, right? And that hasn't like, been confirmed yet. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and, and then and then you know LeBron or Tom controls or works with the GMs around trades, and that probably happens. Of course, you do that yeah. with your top players. But the shit that you're getting is largely from your opponents. And I remember when I was playing with Atlas, my first two years, the locker room felt different with my teammates. And it wasn't personal. It was just different. And I had guys come up to me asking how they could get you know, a half-size larger cleat and what we were having for dinner. And I'm like, fuck, man. It was just so much And even pressure. though they know you're not 
necessarily involved, right? You've tried to remove yourself. Mike's your brother. You guys talk about things. You're involved in the business. Yeah. So they think that, you know, whether it's funny or not, it's kind of Yeah, they an know. And then they joke. also, and you know, people just, they go to the nearest and most available source of finding an outcome for whatever yeah. their problem is. And, they, yeah. and, and I know that in most cases there was an intent. Yeah. Because I would argue heavy for me. I would argue that majority, if not almost everyone, appreciates what you guys have done for the sport, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Just where it was and where it is today. Yeah. I mean, I also talk about macro theory as we address uh, remember necessity, utility, and community around building a company. If you're an entrepreneur out there, are you solving for one or more of those actually? And you know, the, one of the longest standing, most successful programs on network television is The Office, and it taps into the psychology of employees' disdain for employer. Yeah. And there's a reason why when Roger Goodell or Gary Bettman go on stage at the draft or deliver the Stanley Cup trophy, they're booed. It's just a part of the culture. And so Mike and I, I we try to remind ourselves to have a laugh at it. Yeah. And as the PL grows, that's only going to become more evident. So mm-hmm. I think I got out while I could, yeah. to be honest. But yeah, I would argue it gets worse, right? It gets like, worse. You're, you're it's at just a good what spot it, now. It's what it is. Yeah. Right? It, is, it, is what it is. It's part of it. And the reality is behind the scenes, from a legal standpoint in some cases, from a maturity standpoint in others, in a modern climate where people want answers and a lot of times deserve answers, you certainly can get them as quick as possible because of Twitter and Meta and Instagram. You have to reserve sharing that. So a lot of times it looks like you're hiding the ball. When you're not, you just have to allow the process to run its course. Mm-hmm. So we're actively putting in practice there around maintaining our core principle, I think, which was different from other leagues, which is inviting people behind the scenes and talking about the making of the league. I have a series called State of the League to do that. So it's not practice in sports to also as we grow as an organization, respecting our colleagues and executives who run their respective departments and giving them jurisdiction to make decisions and giving the microphone to them and things like that. I think one of the big benefits you probably have too, and I'm curious if you guys, maybe you've hired people that have been in the league and they work for the league now, or maybe there's kind of these these quasi roles, but Francis Ngannou talks about this all the time of like the UFC, one of the things that he gets really annoyed about and fighters get annoyed about is they don't listen to fighters, right? They don't mm. allow them in meetings. They don't allow their voices to be heard. They don't even understand at a lot of times kind of what they're angry about. You have this unique role of like you understand exactly why people are upset or angry or whatever you were in those seats and that's why you did this is that something that you guys are cognizant of going forward of like let's listen to the players let's make sure we're all on the same page 100 percent. it's something that we did from the get-go our players have stock options in the league yeah. uh, the players we signed out of the gates stock options were part of their agreement and then every player earned stock options for every game that they play in and where we thought about that is is no different than a startup where early stage employees get equity in the business, you typically reserve 10% of your total pool for employees. And so we cut out a portion of that, not only for our employees, but for our players and our coaches. That's unique. And so as such, they are actual shareholders in the business. They're not Mm -hmm. just stakeholders. Our fans are stakeholders. Our players are actual shareholders. So we communicate with them about big decisions. We built a players council where there's leaders across each of the teams that we meet with every month around team needs and addressing those year over year and different nuances, whether it's like a guy who has, you know, several vegan players on his team and the last meal kits that came through for breakfast on a Saturday morning didn't include that option. Like we're hearing that we're hearing, you know, 
things that I heard in the locker room that I addressed, like a couple of shoe sizes are a half size too small. And so then we build process, whether that's technology where players can just go into a portal and opt in or who they should actually talk through. We're as much of a league operation as we are a media company, as we are a talent business. Do you have any good stories of people helping you out initially? I'm sure there's too many to thank. Oh, but like, God, nonstop. As a startup, I feel like there's always, you know, there's people that like help you out initially and do things for you that wouldn't have been achievable. It would have been difficult to achieve initially and helped you guys get off. Oh, God. Time. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. You, I don't Scott Soshnick. Yeah. You know, Scott's people, great. you know, there, there are people who, who have helped us that actually have alignment with their respective businesses. Like your job, I mean, fantastic job around talking about sports and business and the intersection and talent, things like that makes sense. But you also, you know, are a entity that is constantly looking at driving most attention to service advertisers and your partners. And what I have to do is get lacrosse there somehow. Mm -hmm. So there's a hybrid of favor and business practice, but then there's mentorship. So, our board is, has largely been a function of mentors to Mike and myself who believed in us and invested and invested so much into a board seat. But Erica Nardini, before she was on our board, she would sit with us because she played all the way through college lacrosse and you know we were friends and she sat with us strategically before we even launched and would meet with us quarterly. Now she's on our board. One of my favorite people in the world is a mentor of mine and I chased him down back in 2015 to buy him a coffee is Scott Galloway. And in our latest round of financing, he sat on a call with me for an hour to talk through strategy. Damn, I can't even imagine what brands pay him as a consultant to do that. Yeah. He sat on the board of the New York Times, has successfully run nine companies, and I think is probably the most savvy brand marketer, business intelligence person in the world. Lived in New York, now lives in London with his family. But people like that just go out of their way. And I mean, Adam Silver, was there something Don with, Garber, uh, like they're uh, all fucking great human beings that help us because they're pulling for us. Yeah. They know what it's like and how hard it is. And they also know the image of them sitting in an ivory tower is actually not true. Don's like, we're a 27 or 28 year old startup. And well, they all had help to it some degree. Right. And they, I think they appreciate yeah. know, lending a hand in those instances. I mean, it's all the time. It wasn't even getting us out of the gates. It's today. Yeah. You know, Mike there... was at the chiefs chargers game yesterday with Mark Donovan, who's an investor and like Mark, Got a pretty busy day yesterday and, and, you know, invited us to dinner and I hopped on a plane, but Mike's super close with him. And that's a well above and beyond what Mark gets as an investor. And to your comment, even around Troy Aikman being like, I'd rather be an owner than an investor is we actually hear that. And we involve our investors quite a bit in decision making and try to leverage their network and make them feel a part of it because they are. Was it difficult to get people initially to let you play at their stadiums and stuff. Like I imagine even that, like, is it like, Hey, make sure you pay us up front. To, yeah, to, for to sure. The stuff? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, even with NBC, they, because there was uh, some threats early on, they had asked for a, a screenshot of our balance sheet in our yeah. books because the competitor MLL at the time picked the phone and called them and we're basically like, these guys are full of shit. That was the best part of the documentary, by the way, when <laughs> exactly. those guys were talking shit on the thing <laughs> and you already know the outcome, yeah. like kind of this acquisition, I think it already happened when it came out or something. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this isn't going to age well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right, right. And yeah, and they took those interviews in 2019. But I also have to give a shout out. So Mike Levine, who's known yeah. by most in the industry as one of the kind of most savvy, entertaining business executives who runs CAA Sport with Howie Newchow, and they were brought on by David O'Connor uniquely. But Vino played lacrosse at Cornell. It's a fucking incredible guy. I mean, I remember you know, he believed in us early and got CAA to invest in our series seed. And 
I remember that first Super Bowl I went to. I think it was not the one I'd first been to, but post PLL launch was in Miami in February 2020 before the pandemic. Yep. And Vino's there because, you know, Aaron Rodgers is a client. And like every, he, represents the, there, yeah. he represents the biggest athletes in sports. Yep. And CA was, again, number one agency year over year across the world. And he's going from Super Bowl party, Super Bowl party, event to event, and he's wearing a PLL shirt and being like, that motherfucker is one of the best human beings. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I appreciate like you. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. Yeah. Like that is like people are like, what's that mark? What is that shirt you're wearing, Vino? Yeah. Right? From Michael Rubin to yeah. you know, the next executive, Scott Stubrett, Netflix. Yeah. And they just familiarize themselves through that word of mouth connection. It's amazing. What's going on with Twitter? Because <laughs> you joked about it before yeah, we started. Well, it gosh. sounded like you had an opinion on kind of uh, the Look, direction that Twitter is headed. Politics out of it. Elon Musk is one of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation. Yeah. Arguably the greatest. And his businesses have actually done a lot of good for the world, for the climate, for the economy. I don't know him personally. I've never met him. His balance sheet at some point was $140 billion, $120 billion. It feels to me like socially he has decided to spend a percentage of his net worth on acquiring one of the largest communication platforms so that he can address, I think, one of the worst adult midlife crises of all time. <laughs> I, uh, That's how it's playing out right yeah. now. I mean, he's more active on it than anyone yeah. And the stuff that he's putting out, honestly, is grotesque. Yeah. And it's so baffling that I don't know what's going to happen. Yep. And not to say that I can predict shit, but we can usually sit around and have a conversation. I mean, Bob Iger just got brought back in to be the CEO of Disney, and that was a bit shocking. Yep. And we could talk about that and, and have a discussion around you know, what the board was thinking, how long was this always going to happen? Bob Chapik had just signed a renewal and Chapik comes from parks and Bob is a creative and has led, I think, one of the largest companies, successful companies in the world. Okay, cool. Let's talk about that. What the angle here is, I have no fucking clue. He's talking about making an advertising safe and then throwing sex memes up. I don't get it. Like it's fucking baffling to me. I am more nervous than I initially was. Right. I think when he did it, first off, I didn't think it was going to happen. Right. I, when he initially started doing it, I thought it was kind of a joke. Then it went through and then he seemed like he didn't want to do it anymore, which I think was just that he overpaid for it. And he's an engineering wizard. So I'm like, so yeah. then I'm like, okay, it went through. It's going to get done. And he, yeah. he's probably going to drive this thing up. Yeah. I and thought initially now, like, that he was doing some good things. Right. And then we've seen kind of a lot of the rollout recently and it, it hasn't been good. I would argue that we probably need to give it more time, right? Like, No question. We, we have to let it play out and, and see what happens given his track record. If he didn't have any track record, it's like, all right, let's throw this in the bag already. But I do argue that Twitter is just too important of a platform to do this with. I think that there is a case to be made that Twitter was not doing particularly well before, right? If you just look at the financing of the company, they were losing a lot of money and these things, and maybe someone else could have done better in that seat. I just do wonder what the end goal is here, right? Is it to truly build a better platform? Is it to have fun? Is it to, you know, we don't know. But yeah, I, I mean, you can be a genius with mixed intentions, good intentions, bad yeah. intentions. I think he's a genius. Yeah. Just to, just his track record of business building and wealth accretion and yeah, and environmental impact and global impact. And I can hold that and also say that I'm worried because yep. the platform's important to me. It's, I think it's important to a lot of people. It's important to a lot of business sectors, news sectors. And so, 
you have to, I mean, one of the things we learned during the elections with Facebook is one, you have to take responsibility for what you've built. Yep. Right. You're a media company now. And so you need to jurisdict or govern as the New York Times or the Washington Post or Boston Globe does. Mm -hmm. That means credential editorials, review systems in place, monitoring of advertising. You know, if the New York Times had carte blanche around advertisers, they would have become TMZ. Yeah. But they were like, no, we have to uphold the standards of editorial means and kind of editorial genesis that we want in a democracy. So it's not just Twitter right now with Elon Musk. It's others understanding the power that they have and, you know, and hold the integrity of free speech. But this thing just gets carried away. Yeah, I think my main thought around a lot of this stuff is like separating Elon as the entrepreneur versus Elon as like the person, right? And I think in a lot of instances, I'm guilty of this to some degree, many people are, is like we look at people who have been ultra successful in one arena and we point it to like everything they do, mm -hmm. right? And the perfect example with Elon is to your point, he's built some incredible companies. He's created a lot of wealth. He's done really well for other people too. Like how many millionaires have been minted because of Tesla and all these other companies he's built tons of them, right? From a capitalism standpoint, I would argue he's done a great job from an entrepreneurship perspective. The problem is like, you wouldn't point to his personal life. He's been married a bunch of different times. He has kids with a bunch of different people and be like, that's what I want to do, right. right? So you have to separate the two of the jokes and the memes and the business building. And hopefully he figures you know, one of them out. But my frustration, a lot of this lies at the people who have no ability to do that, right? They're just like, right. Elon's the best ever. And it's difficult, right? It's, right? it's tough to do when you believe in something and you want it to succeed. But it's just, it's something I've certainly become more cognizant of, like not even Elon, athletes, other people too, of like, they do one thing really well. It doesn't mean they do other things well, too. We drove the point home around the jury's still out. You can be both. Yeah. You can be really sloppy personally and doing the stuff that he's doing right now on Twitter, which I wholeheartedly disagree with. Yep. And then also because of his engineering background and coding background, his ability to build a tech stack, unlike most, make Twitter economically make sense again. They could coexist. The other thing that I'll call out is just... Again, community, connection, attention, that third sort of business focus is never to be taken lightly because we understand processing capabilities across speech, across advertising, across propaganda, across you know ethical and morally netted news, is that people will digest what they hear through their own personal experience system, right? And uh, you and I could play in the same game and tell the story of the outcome of that game differently because we processed it from different sides of the field and we made different plays. And that's part of being empathetic is understanding that that's just going to exist. Mm -hmm. And why to be careful with it is that as a species, we feel safer when we slot things into a binary. So Elon's good or bad. Twitter is going to be successful or it's going to be a failure and so on and so forth. That's just the fastest way and most coherent way that people process. So just being okay with that. That boss is an asshole or he's super nice. And like the yeah. reality is we just live life in between and everything's in the gray. Yeah. And I think that was your point around Elon and his personality on Twitter and his business acumen as the boss now. In the end, our species, which is a homo sapiens species, we're sapiens, the differentiation between us and any other species in the world is that our speech is tied to our ability to gossip. 
And gossip is tied to tabloids right now. But gossip is just purely by definition, defining a narrative and getting collective buy-in on it. You know, whether it's an LLC or an S-Corp, a single entity trade association that we talked about for sports, mm-hmm. those theories came up, were come up by someone and gotten collective buy-in and interest to then write it into law. Right? Same thing with economic currency and trade. We used to trade wheat. Now we trade dollars. We started trading crypto. It's collective buy-in. And so that that's then sport and team affiliation and love for a game and why people just go fucking bananas for their team on the field. And when they're, you know, when the Jets start hot and then start losing, you know, they've got the best coach in the world in front office and the worst coach in front office in the world. And they're going to blunder and not make the playoffs. And there's value in that. We just have to be careful. Yeah. You know, and not, and make sure that we have, you know, kind of human dignity in mind and safety. My last question is um, entrepreneurship in general. You were, I still remember the article, Lacrosse's Million Dollar Man, right? was the title of it. You took a sport. You obviously were the first overall pick. You weren't getting paid much your rookie year, all this other stuff. But you were one of the first people that started creating content. You were on Facebook. You were doing different things and built up this platform that you still have today, right, of, of social content. I assume part of that was intentional, but did you understand at the time what you were doing? Did you know that you could make a living doing lacrosse? Did you think anything of it? Just talk me through kind of like how you approached all that. Yeah. Well, I had a lot of help along the way per your earlier question. My first endorsement deal was with Under Armour and Kevin Plank right before he took the company public. And they had expressed to me that while they haven't figured out social media, the fact that I was on it was one of the reasons. And, you know, I was playing really well. But the primary reason was that I was building and had access to an audience that at the time the sport didn't, MLL. So I was aware of that because I was getting paid early on Mm -hmm. by a brand to continue to develop. That's actually really interesting that basically you had reached that the league above you didn't have, right? Right away. So you're working with advertisers or partners that want to reach that audience and you're actually a better option than the league. Yep. Yeah. That's, yep. that's At one point I had convinced MLL to let me API through Facebook's, the broadcast. Facebook was the shit back in the day, right? Through that the was... broadcast of our game. I think it was the Lizards versus the Rochester Rattlers. Yeah. And the game was streamed live on my Facebook page. And I worked with at the time, Will Yoder, who's still there yeah, I know at Meta and to like set this up. You know what's hilarious? I used to intern. I interned for Will. At Octagon? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. how Will and I, I was used to be an Octagon athlete. Will and I built this relationship. Then he went over to Instagram and Meta. Yeah. 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 It's such a great guy. Another person who still is really helpful. Yeah. So there was a little bit of validation around social you know, my dad's birthday was yesterday and I posted this photo of him hanging out with a bucket hat when he was in his thirties, I think in a digital camera or one of the early digital cameras. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was, and, you know, he's, you put a camera in front of him. He's super dynamic. And I think some of the attention of social and communication and audience building and sharing a story is like runs in my blood. So I also enjoy the platforms. I struggle with them. The same reasons that everyone does and I've created boundaries for myself but at the time in 2008 it was just wide open yeah people were making fun of social and I was like I could tell this was going to be the future Mm -hmm. it was working for me and a sport that had a built-in audience that that audience had no way to access the pro that was at the final four in front of 60,000 people at Gillette Stadium Mm -hmm. who's still playing 
that they loved and were following on Facebook, they also hated. Both people sort of follow you from yeah, time to time. Yeah, watching, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paying attention. Yeah. And then you go away. I remember my first agent at the time told me, okay, let's just sign the biggest deals because I hate to tell you, but you're, you're probably going to be irrelevant in three years. Yeah. It's just who's up for the tour ton and who's playing the championship that yeah. you, your peak has passed you. You're like, fuck, man. And I remember being like, fuck, man, <laughs> yeah. and fuck you. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be the case. And it wasn't the case. Yeah. So there was some product validation. And then I would just say a lacrosse athlete is an entrepreneur by necessity. I had no choice. My first job was in real estate. I was a mm. financial analyst for a group called Cassidy, Turley, Mark, and Martin Tucker. And the only reason why is my bosses would let me take off Thursdays and Fridays to go play. And I was getting paid $6,000. So, and then I was getting paid, I think 45 grand as a salary for, as an analyst for a yeah. capital markets group. And then I left that job nine months in when I, you know, got this Under Armour deal and then I got a Red Bull deal and, and I had no choice. If I wanted to pursue my passion, which is what we want to do at the PLL is to allow players to pursue their passion, what they love, take care of themselves, create a future where they can take care of their families, sign multi-million dollar deals and then inspire a continued budding generation of players and participants, boys and girls, men and women, and also casual sports fans, right? Tom mm. Brady inspires the athletes on the field, but he also inspires a lot of people who are struggling and looking to continue whatever it is they're doing beyond what other people think is possible. And he's got 44 or 45 years old. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. Well, he's uh, going through some shit right now too, and that's hard, but we all go through some shit. Yeah. We need hopefully be have a little bit more empathetic to him. I, I went I, through a divorce and it was fucking really brutal. I feel unconscious sometimes of like things that I put out there, right? I understand. It's weird to think about sometimes, but like you do have a platform, right? Like you have yeah. a platform and people, I wouldn't say like listen to what you do. I always think like no one really gives a shit what I have to say. That's but a like, great mindset. You know what I mean? Like I just like think about it in the way of like if I put it out there, it's out there and it's getting a certain number of people are going to look at it just given how big the audience is and stuff like that. And when Tom Brady went through the press conference, remember the press conference where he came out there and he just looked really bad and he just looked like he hadn't ate in a week yeah. and didn't sleep and all this shit. And everyone was like making, the divorce hadn't come out yet, but like everyone was making fun of him and saying all this stuff. I'm like, guys, you clearly know the guy's going through shit. You don't look like that for no reason. Like he's got a lot of fucking shit going on. Yeah. And like, that was obviously one of the things on the table and other stuff too. Just like, there's only so many things, health issues, stuff like that, that can make you look like that. And it shocked me how little empathy people had for him in that situation. Like, like not even fans i'm talking about like high level people like yeah. people you see on tv talking about sports like everyone was it was a meme right and for someone that you use every day to talk about to create content around who has given so much to the league and other places it just felt kind of not right in my mind yeah well i think you lead with empathy which is really important yeah have really good perspective which is sort of the phrase you use, like in the end, no one really gives a shit about what I think. I remember that was one of the things I learned when I first started getting into therapy was, it's going to sound narcissistic, but the world does not revolve around you. Yeah. We, most of us go Everyone thinks that you think, think about yourself and kind of the situations that you're in. And, oh God, I would practice Oh, it. this person thinks of this of me. They're yeah. not really thinking about I, it. I worked on, I'll give you two examples. One for my sports psychologist, the other for my therapist. Loads of support again. Yeah. But I was trying to work on my temper on the field with my sports psychologist. Mm -hmm. And what the temper would do is it was a fuel for me to practice. But on the field, it would keep me harboring on the last play versus present. So if I started the game shitty, I wouldn't have a great game. And so there we were like, let's figure out micro ways to work on that away from the practice field and game. So yep. I played a lot of ping pong with friends and I would get really pissed off. And it's like, okay, try to play ping pong. <laughs> 
don't take it as seriously. You know, at the time, I used to get sort of road rage too. Yeah. Someone cut you off, like, motherfucker. So work on my ability to be patient. And I'm, a, I think, a really pleasant driver. So these like micro moments to work on things that are larger deficits in our life. Mm-hmm. And then therapeutically, when you think about the world doesn't revolve around you, I think one of the ways when it pops up is you go to a party and you don't know anyone. Yeah. Or if you get invited to a party, you get invited to an event, you don't get a plus one or whatever, you go and you're just, maybe I'm not going to go because I don't know anyone there. I would go to those. Yeah. And, you know, what you end up doing is you, you force yourself to meet people. Yeah. But at other times you sit in a corner mm-hmm. and the first thing that goes in your mind is how many people are realizing that I'm here by myself mm-hmm. and I'm the loser in the corner. Yeah. And the reality is no one's thinking that. Yeah. They're all probably thinking the same thing. Who am I going to talk to next? Or am I having fun? Or are people looking at me? Point is, is like we are all living our own stories that are unique and challenging and lovely at moments. And if you can lead with empathy and try to understand that to your point, like, fuck, let me just think about this from Tom's perspective. Yeah. Gosh, you're a beacon of light mm-hmm. for the rest of the world to sort of try to emulate more people like that, the better. And then the last thing I'll share from Scott Galloway I remember him telling this, but, you know, a lot of people will celebrate the cover of Inc. Magazine and it was Mark Zuckerberg for consecutive weeks. And, you know, we're in this world now where, you know, tech entrepreneurs are celebrated like tycoons, one, because, you know, they're, they built a product that we all use and because we all use it, you know, there's 3 billion people on Meta and there's 1.8 billion Catholics. And so you could argue that Mark Zuckerberg has more influence than God. And so like they have influence and then they're also being celebrated. What he would say is, Assume you're not Mark Zuckerberg. Assume you're not Michael Jordan. Assume you're not Tom Brady. Assume you're not LeBron James. Assume you're not the next, what we think is overnight success, because none of those people actually are, Mm -hmm. and now go about your business. And I think that was really important because we all model ourselves and aspire to be different things if you are hungry in the workforce or personally. And to have perspective around that, but also realize that no one was ever an overnight success and just pound the fucking pavement around something that you care about and make an impact and lead with empathy. Yeah. The one caveat I would add to that, which I think is very important and very difficult is I get asked all the time by people want to create content, be an entrepreneur, want to like start these businesses and want to take advantage of the social age. And the one piece of advice I always give is like, everyone knows you have to be consistent, right? You have to do certain things. You have to be willing to put in hours that other people want. Like everyone has the same goals, but the difference is that you're willing to do certain things. But I always mention that the one thing that I think helped me the most and should help a lot of other people is you have to just get comfortable with yourself like mm. very quickly. And the earlier you do that in life, you're, you're way better off, right? And especially when you're doing things in public, like you are, like I am creating content and you're always going to have people that don't like things. You're going to have people that aren't comfortable with things and it hurts you or it makes you upset to some degree and you want to please people. It's just who people are, right? But the quicker you are with saying, I don't care about that. Not that you don't care about the person. You don't care about what they think. You just don't care about their opinion because you're trying your best. You're putting in the best effort you can. You care about your family, your friends, your wife, etc. I think that is like a total unlock and it's something that helped me a ton. Initially later, first thing I did when I first started doing this was I got to that place. Like, yeah. And it's difficult and you work on it every day, but I got to a place where I just said to myself, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks, mm-hmm. right? And if you can get there, I think it unlocks a lot of upsides because you have the ability to just yeah. go. That's so great. And it's part of the value of sport. Yeah. Is that we are able to harness and quickly digest lessons from sport and apply them to life. Mm -hmm. And what you're discussing right there is common practice in sport, which Mm -hmm. is to make a team, to be valuable to the team, you've got to practice your ass off. You got to be the best version of yourself. Yeah. And again, that is a known quantity and quality in sports. It's taught at the youth level all the way through pros. And there's no way about adding value to your team unless you're working on yourself. It's lost 
in other areas of life. And I'll reference just romantic relationships because we're pushed to date at such an early age. Mm -hmm. The best relationships I've found, and I ask a singular question to anyone who's had relationship for decades and married couples and stuff, like, what's the secret? And in a lot of cases, the shared value is that they have built a relationship with themselves that they're secure in ahead of the romantic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that like th your focus should be on yourself, right? And your wife's focus should be on herself. And then together, that's where things come together. A hundred percent. You can't worry about her necessarily all the time and she can't do it for you. It's too much to worry about two people. The worst thing to happen to re relationships is the idea is that you complete me. Yeah. I think it's Jim Rohn who said a much better way of framing, I'm going to work on me for you if you work on you for me. Yeah. I like that. That's the way about going about it. Yep. Yeah. All right. This is actually the last question. Who's okay. your stylist? Because <laughs> you got good style. Oh, I see you around you. Oh, you, know, you, know. you go on these red carpets and stuff. Yeah. You got good. Uh, you got good style. Well, I've got. I, I've got a great team. Great publicists at Narrative, and they've actually hooked me up with different stylists. Uh, sometimes direct with a brand. Yeah. I do a lot of stuff with Giorgio Armani. Uh, and they have incredible people there. Uh, gentleman in LA, his name's Barry. He's a, he works on. How does this work though? Uh, they like you go in, they dress you, or yeah. they tell you what to wear, or basically they'll, you. They'll, they'll dress me, and then I will also buy stuff yeah. too because I love the brand. Yeah. But on a day to day basis, you pick out what you're going to wear. Yeah, yeah. And then there's New. I mean, I fucking love New York. Yeah. And one of my one of my favorite designers right now is this guy Teddy Santis, who's who runs Ame Leondor. Mm -hmm. And Ame is like getting huge now. These are Ame pants. And then Ronnie Feig at Kith has built an empire, yep. right? You Ronnie studied... said he's coming on the podcast. He hasn't fulfilled he? that duty yet, Did but he? this is to convince him to do yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, God. Like the designers all around that are tied to the CFDA and whatever, whether it's Bodie or Marnie or some of these groups, like yeah. there's just so much artisanship in the way that you express yourself. And I think I've got, I, what I've learned is I've gotten more into fashion and design since retiring than I was before because I don't have a uniform anymore. Yeah. For athletes, your uniforms of what you're wearing on the floor yeah. and then- Like as in you have a skill. canvas now, like a blank one that you can kind of- Yeah, what's my uniform now as an yeah. executive? I, I don't really want to wear a suit. Yeah. And so, and then I work, I have a friend who's built a uh, sort of a catalog of looks for me. Her name's Rocky Darian. She's great and, and things like that. Ask, curate uh, on Instagram. I'm going to I'm gonna have to get your Rolodex after this because I'm still in khaki Tell pants. Me more. I got the uh, the T-shirt on or the, the sweatshirt. Uh, but yeah. No, but I, I, I want to bring on an official stylist for the PLL. And Did I, I want to bring uh, on a fashion house yeah. for the PLL. And, and a lot of those leagues and teams are cutting deals. AC Milan just did one. Deal. AC Milan did one with Off-White uh, oh, yeah. where they – because the whole thing now is, right, the player's getting off the bus, the player's walking yeah. in, whatever. Arrival so, shots, such a valuable asset Off-white redesigned the bus, right? So yeah. it's like in their, uh, so their quotes and stuff, it says players inside, which might be dangerous to some degree given the fans. But yeah, so they redesigned the bus and then give them jackets or suits to wear to the games. Louis Vuitton does And the does players a lot love it because they get, you know, they get access to all this stuff. They get free clothes, whatever. And it's great because it, it's like a uniform to some degree, but it's better. Yeah. Louis Vuitton's activation with the NBA has been... Great yeah. over time. I think about an American designer. Do you see their ad with Messi and Ronaldo? Yeah. Like broke the internet. Yeah. And Danny Leibovitz shot it. So it's like legend. It was yeah. a combination, right? We have well, legendary photographer. Two of the Incredible most. brand. The two biggest athletes in the world. Yeah. Right? The other Rivals, is, competitors, oh, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Had the second largest engagement in Instagram history. Oh, is that, that true? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. The other example I can think about that. 
is, and I get floated these ideas from different people. It's like, you need to do what this is like, well, you know, if you put Michael Jordan and Spike Lee in a room, magic's going to happen. They'll figure it out. Yeah. Cause it's not just Michael Jordan, it's Spike Lee. Yep. And so it's two of the best. And in that case, you had the best, three of the best, if you had Louis to the situation. So those are those magical moments that cost a lot of money. So it is a rather large bet to see that it'll hit, but mm -hmm. you have baked in two of the most successful people in the world, the top two Instagram accounts, I think. Mm -hmm. Ronaldo's almost at 400 million. And I know Ronaldo hit 500 today. 500 today. 500. Leo's he, he almost had three at something. Yeah, Leo's almost at 400. He had, he's gained a mil, 100 million this year. It's insane. It's crazy. And, know, and then they, the they, they lay it down. They're playing chess on the Louis bag, <sighs> uh, which is most people don't know this, what the World Cup is presented in. Yeah. It opens up and the trophies inside. So it's like the perfect kind of. Uh, well done. Yeah, the story behind it. Was, well done. Uh, and, was and, and that is, I think, how we'll close this. Yeah. Because it's the enterprise of sport yeah. that crosses over into the art of photography, the fashion of a global brand house, fashion house. And the top players in the world are the biggest sport in the world. Nothing There's better. a better example of why sport than the 30 seconds that you gave me at the top. Now yours is better. Point to that. Yeah. All right. I appreciate you doing this, though. Thank yeah. you. I enjoyed uh, it. Fun time as always. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.